Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Of course, I was out um, this last week. My wife and I got a chance to go to Hilton Head. Had a great experience in Hilton Head. And then after we stayed at Hilton Head for a few days, we stayed in Bluffton. The hotels are cheaper in Bluffton. So went over to Bluffton, which was nearby. And last Sunday, uh, since we weren't here, we thought we would go to church. And there's this historic church in Bluffton uh, called Church of the Cross. And it is an Anglican church. Uh, and so I, I vaguely remember Anglican. Like, I think I went to one years ago, visited one time. And uh, but it was this historic church. It's on the, the sound there, the waterway. And so we're like, oh, let's go there this morning. And as soon as we walked in the door, I was like, oh my. Uh, so it's like, I would say, it's like um, if Catholics became Protestants but kept all the stuff. Uh, that's what it was like. So like when you walked in, they had the pews and each pew had a door on it. Uh, like literally, you have to unlatch the door, you go in, you shut it. And I had to make sure that we were supposed to latch afterwards because like, am I keeping somebody out if I do this? Um, but everybody was latching, so I latched the door, you go and you sit down. And, uh, and then it's like the, the priest guy comes in, although they called him pastor. So the, the pastor dressed like a priest walks in and like somebody's carrying the big cross, you know, down the, the middle, like a processional. And this lady behind him has this gilded Bible that she's holding up as she's walking and the acolyte lights or whatever behind them and as they're walking by. And then the people are bowing to the cross and the, the Bible. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening here. Uh, and it's just tough. I'm sensitive. Like if you're a visitor here this morning and you're like, uh, new church stuff freaks me out. Like I get it. I just lived it last week. And so I'm like trying to figure out what to do, but it's, I mean, it was very much, you know, they're singing the songs. The message was good. The message uh, basically was on why we need rest. And I was like, oh, God sent me here this morning. So, uh, <laughs> like I knew I was there on purpose. Um, but I did tell my wife this. I said, listen, um, when I went to an Anglican church years ago, I seem to remember that they did communion and they had a common cup, meaning everybody drank out of one cup. And I was like, so we are not doing communion this morning. Like, I don't like, you know, and my wife was like, well, I'd be okay with this. Like, no, we're not doing it. And so, um, so then though, the ushers come down and they start undoing the doors on everybody's thing and they open it up and they're like, here you go. And so they start doing it on the rows in front of us. And I was like, we're doing communion this morning. <laughs> so, and then to do communion, you gotta go up front and you kneel at the front where they have the little altar area. So you kneel at the front. And so uh, we go up and of all the people there that morning, there were hundreds of people there that morning, I'm the only one who kind of missed the kneeling bench. Uh, so I go down and I'm like, you know, like, I'm all right, I'm all right. I do this all the time, I'm Anglican, you know? So uh, God, I got it took communion and they do it though but the way they do it is first of all they had the big wafer thing but they're handing them out with tongs into your hands which is like okay thank you for not touching all the wafers uh and then um they practice something called intinction i've heard of it before intinction is where they have the chalice of uh wine but you just dip your uh bread in there and then you take it and it's like okay i can like i can do that uh so then we did that and we went and we sat back down and uh so just a it's a wild experience but i i still come out of it with this this thought you know that I am reminded, it really doesn't matter the style of how we do what we do. Uh, I think we like to attach a significance to that, like something's more biblical or better or, you know, what, and like, it's just not the case. <laughs> I mean, they did a choir, they sang songs in an octave that no human should sing. Uh, you know, it's like you're, as a guy, you're sitting there going like, are there any men with bass in their voice who will sing this song? Like, it's just like, ah. So we did the best we could, but the songs honored Jesus, the message honored Jesus, the people honored Jesus. Like it was just a great thing. So it reminds me again, form is irrelevant. If people who love Jesus are together worshiping the one true God, then however you're doing that, praise God. And uh, so great experience there. So amen. 
Uh, good. Yeah. So, all right. Um, and then last week, of course, I wasn't here. And it, it's a it's a struggle for a pastor when you leave and you know you're going to be handing off a section of scripture that you really wanted to teach. Uh, and so when I saw, I knew we were going to be gone. And I looked at what was coming up, and I knew we were going to be gone during David and Goliath week. And that's just it is so like I want to give away the weeks I don't want to preach. Like I don't like that story. You teach that story. Um, and I had to give this to Pastor Eric. But I know Pastor Eric did a great job. Pastor Eric's back there right now. So thank you, Pastor Eric, for rocking the, the message last week. And, uh, and so this, when we pick up now in 1 Samuel 18, and so if you have your Bibles handy, go to 1 Samuel 18. As you go to 1 Samuel 18, we are picking up right at the, the backside of that. Because if you remember, after David has killed Goliath uh, and the, the, the Philistines have been slaughtered by Israel, uh, David comes back, <laughs> cuts off the head of Goliath, and brings it to King Saul. And, uh, and then King Saul's like, hey, tell me about your family. Who are you? You know, all this kind of stuff, the, the little interview. Um, this, where we're picking up in 1 Samuel 18, seems to be picking up right, right after that, just right after that. So let's go to 1 Samuel 18. Let's just look at the first few verses as we get going. 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So really what we're seeing here is we're seeing the development of a friendship, uh, of best friends. And I'm, I just feel like our culture is losing the concept of best friends without wanting to uh, introduce some sort of... Um, wrongful uh, uh, romantic overtones. Like, you know, like if two guys and two girls really, they care about each other's best friends, um, then people are like, ooh, what's the relationship there? Like, listen, best friends have been some gods invented from, you know, time eternal. And so here are these two guys, they just love each other. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, Jonathan has just watched David do the greatest military feat he's ever seen in his life. This, this young man, ill-equipped, unarmored, uh, going against this beast of a man who should have destroyed him, and David's victorious. Uh, now, you remember some things about David. David is a man who deeply loves the Lord and is filled with the Spirit of God. Well, we know from just what we've seen about Jonathan already, Jonathan also is a man who deeply loves the Lord. Uh, and so these are two men who really love the Lord. And we've seen David do this amazing military feat, but Jonathan's no slouch either. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 14, he and his armor bearer, just two people, are like, let's go take it to the Philistines, you and me. And he goes, and they have an amazing military victory that they spawn. And so, like, this is just a guy stepping back and looking and going like, totally respect that dude, totally respect him. And, uh, and I get it in a sense. So, um, so football has started, right? You know, some of you are aware of that. Um, so, <laughs> I know, South Carolina is just, you know, another year. Um, it's just how it is. It's just how it is. Um, you know, we accept that. It's, you know, it's part of how it works. And, um, but I'm also an App State fan. App State got a great start, so praise the Lord for that. Uh, but this week, uh, the NFL is going to kick off. So Thursday night, there's a couple teams playing. What are they again? The, this Kansas City team, the, the Chiefs, is that? So I'm from Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City Chiefs will be playing the J Detroit Lions. And so, like, after every NFL game uh, and after a lot of college games, you will see 
the competing quarterbacks come out on the field and they'll just, they'll greet one another because they know any given Sunday you win or lose or any given Saturday, depending, uh, like you win or lose and like that's just how it goes. And so they go out there. So this, this week you'll see Patrick Mahomes, Jared Goff, they'll meet on the field at some point, tell each other good game uh, and then they'll, they'll walk away. But there's just this respect. And so when Jonathan sees David, he's like looking at an, an elite quarterback, so to speak, just going, totally respect this guy. And they start hanging out and their personalities mesh and they become best buds to the point where even Jonathan gives him stuff. That also is not weird. I mean, you're looking at this going like, dude, you get wear your sword, your robe, your belt. What are you, what are you doing here? Like when you have a best friend, you'll just sacrifice for them. Like you want to, you want to bless them. You want to give them stuff and you want to give them meaningful things because they're important to you. And so you give them something that reflects how important they are to you. And that's what Jonathan does. And you might think this, so this is weird too, because Jonathan should be, technically, next in line for the throne. So that's what Saul would think. Saul would think, my son Jonathan will take over the throne. And David should know, generally, that, that he wouldn't have any access to the throne, although he's got other stuff going on with him and Samuel and all this kind of thing. But like, like generally, that's how that, that would work. And so if you're Saul watching your son develop best friendship with this guy and then giving him even his sword and his robe and these signs of authority and power, like how would he respond? Well, we saw how Saul responded because if you read the end of this, it says, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so the way he kind of uh, responds to this, Saul's like, listen, I don't care. This guy's awesome. And so he makes him the general uh, of his armies. Um, now, while, while this section here is not teaching about friendship, it is not like, hey, you need to go have a best friend. I do want to pause and just say, I hope, I hope you have a best friend in your life. Now, some of us have married our best friends, so that's awesome. I also think, though, and this is just Jeff thinking, that you probably need a same-gender best friend um, because there's just a way that guys talk uh, that you talk is different than your wife. And women, like, I've, I've heard you all talk to each other. That's not how we would... You know, guys are not going to interact with you like that. Um, you know, also, you know, like also when you're a woman and you're like, uh, you call your best friend to take her shopping because if my wife says to me, do you want to go shopping today? The answer is always no. Just all, like... Almost, well, almost always. Do you want to buy something for me or is this for you? Uh, like, I'm in if you're buying for me, but we can actually just do that on Amazon. We don't have to go anywhere. Um, so, but anyway, that's, that's kind of how we do it. So I think you need that. And scripture gives us this insight in Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses nine and 10. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So I think one of the benefits is you have somebody to help you through life. Now, obviously, when you get married, your spouse is that person, uh, but it also helps to have just a, a good buddy, a best friend who will be there with you. There's also something in the book of James I would point you to, and this is James chapter 5, verse 16, that says, pray for one another uh, so that you may be healed uh, and confess your, sins, or confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And so I think in this, like somebody to, to share what you're struggling with, you're wrestling with, because wrestling with life, struggling with life, struggling with sin is normal for everybody. And to have a safe person to process that with, you, you just need that. And so I guess my, my push would be, if you don't have a best friend, you might want to start developing that relationship. Find somebody that you, you can really pour deep into and who gets to know you. So anyway. Uh, but in the end here, everybody loves David. He's famous. Uh, things are great until verse six. <clears throat> verse six, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another and they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David 
his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. All right, so um, in this culture, of course, there's no TV, there's no radio, uh, there's no news. I mean, this, this, the way they did celebrity was just different. You had to have done something amazing, and David has done something amazing. Now, if you think about this too, David's young, uh, he's handsome, and he has just had a great military victory where he has delivered the entire country. Uh, most eligible bachelor, bachelor. That's, that's what you've got there. Like he, he walks down the street and everybody wants to be David. Um, and so he walks down the street, people love him and uh, he's just accomplished this great thing and we all love to celebrate. Everybody loves to celebrate a victory. Everybody does. So um, it doesn't matter what you're celebrating. Like when I was, had my kids playing, when they were playing their little, like my daughter played middle school basketball. Have, have you ever watched a girl's middle school basketball game? <laughs> I'm just asking. The final score could be like, eight to two, and you just watched a whole game. Um, it is laborious. Um, but when your kid's team wins, you jump up and down like Patrick Mahomes just threw the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. I mean, you, like, it's your kid. And you're like, Wah! you know, you celebrate the whole thing. Well, uh, well of course... It, it, it's even more so if your country was just delivered. I mean, like, like you just had this military victory that delivered everything. Like, we can all sleep safe tonight because David just did this amazing thing. So when he walks down the street, the women, what they've done is they, they have pulled aside and uh, because the women weren't at war. The men are all at war. The women have pulled aside and those who are gifted among them have developed song and dance. Uh, they've got musical instruments. They've got this whole thing planned. And they've got this victory parade. And so as the men are returning from war and they're victorious and they're being celebrated, the women have composed this song. They come out and they're singing their playing. Now, I do want to note too, they are playing uh, among the other instruments, percussion instruments. Um, there was some argument years ago in church about whether or not drums should be there. And I would say drums are a gift from God in a church. So just putting that out there as a drummer. So yeah, yeah. So this is a beautiful thing. So they're coming out and they're singing. And they developed, what they've done is they developed a call and response song. So they're going in front of them, they're singing the song and like, Part of the women will sing one part of the song and then the others answer. And the song goes like, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his thousands. And it's just like a sing-songy kind of thing. It's celebratory. It's not supposed to be derogatory. It's supposed to be like, look what God has done. But there's one guy who does not like that song and that is King Saul. Uh, and he's sitting back and he's thinking, oh my gosh, um, I... I think this is exactly what I was warned about. So if you have your Bibles handy, turn back just for fun to chapter 15. Go to chapter 15, verse 28. So in chapter 15, verse 28, this is where uh, the prophet and priest Samuel is rebuking Saul because he has rebelled against the Lord. And he tells him that the Lord is tearing the kingdom from him. And this is his comment in 1528. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, Saul has not known who this was going to be, and now he does. It is at this moment. So the song has revealed it, so to speak. The song may have instigated this, uh, but, but what it's really revealed is the truth is the guy who's just accomplished this victory, whom you've just brought into your household, who is now the general of your army, 
is the one who will succeed you. He is the one who's going to take the kingdom from you. And so now Saul is uh, wrestling in a very legitimate way with this, uh, this envy, this jealousy, this hatred. And, uh, and these women did it innocently. You know, this is, I will say this, this is funny. Women have a power over men. Um, you do have this power. The, the power is in the way that you can compliment or tear down even accidentally. Uh, and I would say in this case, it was accidental. But like if there are two guys standing near each other and a woman walks up and says to one of them, you know, hey, I just want you to know, I think you're amazing, you're great, you're fun, da, 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 da. You know, and then she leaves. The other dude standing there is just going to feel horrible. Like, like, oh, I'm nothing now. Like, what, what am I all about? Or if a woman comes up and says something derogatory, like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. You could do better, but that's pretty good. You know, like she walks away and then you're just like, I'm horrible. And this, the, the women have no idea. When you put it to song, how much worse. And so uh, this is just so bad. So he feels horrible. He hates everybody, and including David. So um, here we are. Uh, but it, it's even worse than that, verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, uh, Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Uh, so now we've gone from uh, seeing him as a rival and hating him to attempted murder. Uh, this is, you know, and he's the king, so what are you going to do? And so he tries to kill David twice, and David gets away with it. Now, to be fair, I don't know if this is fair, he has an evil spirit that is oppressing him in some way um, that God has allowed, and David has to flee for his life. And so he is raving mad when all this happens, and, you know, uh, David still gets out of it. Now, ironically, though Saul is the one hurling the spear, he's hurling the spear because he's actually afraid of David. So he's fearful that David's going to take his kingdom. But this is crazy because Jonathan, of all people, is the one who should fear David. And he's his best friend. So Jonathan has all rights to the kingdom by way of how things worked back then. Like, he should be next in line to be king. And so for him to have a friendship with David and even to honor David, it's like Jonathan has, has sat back and gone, listen, like, I love the Lord, but God's hand is on this guy in such a unique way. And like, you know, I'm a, I'm a warrior, but this guy is a legitimate warrior. Like there's this deep respect, but there's almost like Jonathan's like, yeah, you know what? He, he'd actually probably make a better king than I would. Like there's just a sense that he's not saying it, but there's just a sense of, and like he's not worried about it. He's not fearful about it, which reminds me too, that this is how people who really love the Lord can handle situations that should lead to rivalry or bitter, bitterness or jealousy. Uh, like you don't, get, you don't get bent out of shape because you realize God is in control. Whereas uh, Saul would be on the opposite side of that. Um, it reminds me of this. So I had a commencement ceremony years ago where I was graduating from CIU uh, with one of my degrees. And they'd invited Dr. Crawford Loritz to speak. And I love Dr. Crawford Loritz. I've listened to him preach a ton over the years. And um, so he was sitting there and he's addressing people. Mostly, most of us were going into ministry. And so he was talking about one of the things that can just ruin a person heading into ministry is uh, ambition and ego. Uh, where you want to you be the next whatever, author, speaker, famous, money, you know, and then you end up the one with the jet and all that kind of, like, uh, that people talk about. Like, he was like, you know, that's so dangerous for somebody wanting to go into ministry. And he said, so I just, I just have uh, this message for you. He said, if, if I could, just appeal that you would let God elevate you. Let God elevate you. His whole sermon was based around this, this idea that when you try to make things happen, you normally ruin it. Uh, but if you'll just be faithful to what God has called you to, God will take care of getting you to where you're supposed to be. 
And that message just stuck with me. And it feels like, like that's what David understands. The reason David doesn't seem to be vying for kingship is because right now he's just trusting God. In fact, later on, when uh, things change even more so, and people are like, you should be the next king, we can make this happen. David's like, whoa, 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 that's a God thing. It's not a David thing. If I'm going to be king, we'll just let God do that. I'm not going to raise my hand against the king. Um, so that's how he processes this. Um, but it does remind me that even with evil lording over us, we can be victorious. There's a story in scripture uh, about a young man that is sold into slavery by his brothers who don't love him. Uh, this is Joseph. And so Joseph, uh, his brothers sell him into slavery. And at the summation, after he's already been through a nightmare of a life, and then things have turned golden for him, you get to Genesis chapter 50, and this is the words he has for his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I'm just reminded, that's what God can do. Like, like you can be going through it and, and at the end of the day, everything flips on its head and it becomes, you know, amazing because that's what happens when God is involved. And so David's trusting the Lord, Jonathan's trusting the Lord, Saul is not, and they're both bearing the fruit of, of that kind of journey. Uh, so here we are. Anyway, so David's having great success in everything he does. Um, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence, made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. You know, there's also something really neat happening there too. It is, it is David's humility that preserves the kingdom. Because if David had stood up and started saying, you know what, I should be king. Like honestly, the, the, the population already loved him. And they know he's a, a military conqueror. Like he's amazing that God's hand is with him. Like if he had really started pushing for that, he could have caused division in the kingdom. Uh, maybe even taken over the throne uh, inappropriately. And so because he's humble and doesn't do that, it preserves the unity of the kingdom, which is actually a beautiful thing. Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here's my eldest daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Um, that's weird. That, that whole thing is weird. Uh, so this goes on here. So Saul says to him, now think about what he said to him. He said, here's, I want you to have my oldest daughter, Merib, but if you're going to have her as a wife, you got to make sure you fight for me. Okay, time out. Uh, I just killed Goliath. <laughs> like, I single-handedly delivered Israel. Like, uh, now you want, what, like, what can I do more? Like, David has proven himself. And so for Saul, to, and so this just goes behind it. Saul really wants this. He's like, I want you to go show me how valiant you are. Go fight these battles. And, side note, I hope you get killed so that you never marry my daughter. Uh, and then he lives too long, of course. And then it's time for Merib to marry. And when it comes time for that, it's like, oh, David, hey, as you're getting dressed today for your wedding, uh, you don't have to, <laughs> you know, or she's going to be marrying somebody else. And, you know, so this story, by the way, is about, it's about Saul. It's about David. Can we pause for a moment? And just think about Merib. Um, first of all, ladies, can I just say it? You are glad you don't live 3,000, 4,000, whatever, how many years ago uh, in a society that's Middle Eastern in nature. And you're just, you don't get to pick a husband. You're given one or given to one. Like, how, like, do you think your parents would choose a better spouse for you than the one you chose for yourself? 
Now, I do get that some in here might be saying, maybe. Uh, but it's too late. You married him. So you're like, you know, that's on you now. Uh, but yeah, I don't think so. I think you'd do a better job at that. But in this culture, that's how it works. And we don't hear anything about her. So, you know, it would be fun to sit down with her if we ever could one day and just go, so what was that like for you? Uh, you know, your, your wedding day. Now, she's marrying the most eligible bachelor in all of the kingdom. He's handsome. He's powerful. He's famous. And then at the last minute, you're handed some schlub we just heard about. Like, oh, great. You know, like, that's wonderful. So that's who she gets to marry. So that moves on uh, with that. The whole thing is weird, um, but it just, it is what it is. Uh, verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. <laughs> okay, can we just agree Saul's a bad dad? He is just a bad, bad dad. He's like, ooh, like if he likes my other daughter, she can ruin his life. That's what I want for him, you know? <laughs> like, now, he's not thinking she'll ruin his life because she's a bad person, but it's just that he's thinking I can use that love to ruin his life, to, to get him killed by the Philistines. Um, so he's a bad dad. He's also, like, even... A, I would say he's a bad politician. He's probably a normal politician uh, because um, <laughs> he's going to use other people to do all his stuff for him and, and manipulate things. Uh, so anyway, let's go forward. Uh, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? All right, so let me, let me pause there for just a second. So when uh, Merib was being promised to David, uh, David's response is, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? So really, probably what happened the first time is David is really saying, I don't want to marry, <laughs> I don't want to marry Merib. I just like, she's, she's not doing it for me. That's not the one I want. Uh, and so this is this polite way of saying, I shouldn't be in your household. I'm too humble. But his response here with Michael, uh, he says, uh, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? So this response is different. This is actually a response where he's like, oh, uh, I, I definitely could marry Michael. I get, you know, even though for us that would be a man's name, but she, she's got the female version. Is that, like I married this Michael, but I'm a man of low reputation, meaning I, I don't know how I could prove I, I deserve her. Now, even though he has slain Goliath and won Israel, like honestly, he could, he could claim he's done that. But, but there's this point where he's like, I just don't know that I deserve it. So they have an idea. They're gonna go report this. I'm a man of no reputation, verse 24. And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except. That's nasty. A hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. That's just gross. Um, all right, so pause for a second. We're in a different day and age, legitimately. Uh, but back in the day when, when kingdoms would go to war, one of the ways they would number the defeat of their enemies is they would take a trophy from the body and it could be a toe uh, or it could be a hand. They're like legitimately that stuff happened. Uh, but, but when all the men of your country are circumcised, um, don't Google any of this by the way. Um, 
when they're all circumcised uh, and your enemies aren't, you can collect foreskins and bring those back. So that's just what they did. Yeah, there you go. Uh, now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, verse 26. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. So here's the thing. It pleased David because he's like, oh, this is something I can do then that will prove I am worth being in the king's household, which again, I think he's already done that, but this is, like to him, this is satisfying. So, oh, okay, yeah, that I can do. Uh, so, before the time had expired, now verse 27, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines, and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So, he tells him to get 100, he gets 200, and he gives them to the king in full number, meaning somebody counted those in front of the king. <laughs> I mean, can you, Philpot, come here, let's just, like, oh. I, I, you know, and you're like, oh. you know, you're like, one. <laughs> I mean, just, how horrible would that be? I mean, just horrible. So he does it, counts them out, give them to him in full number. <sighs> All right. And so Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. And so this has not worked. Everything that he's trying to do to get David in trouble, God is using to bring success and popularity and, and great things about it. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know about setting a price to purchase the wife. Like, that's a thing. Like, you know, you guys who have a married daughter like me, were you paid? Uh, I didn't get to cash in on this. Like, I feel like my son-in-law still owes me, although I'm gonna collect different. Um, we're going to have a different bride price. But like here, he's got this going on. That's just whatever. Uh, but once you get past the grossness of the whole thing, it's actually really impressive because he said, I want you to go kill 100 of my enemies. And David's like, okay, I'll kill 200 of your <laughs> enemies. And the thing is, the 100 enemies, Saul thought would lead to David's death. And not only did that not lead to his death, but he killed 200 and he's a champion. I mean, and so everything is working against Saul and his duplicity. Uh, verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. So it doesn't matter what Saul does, David, um, David is successful and and does great. So here's the thing for me, again, like with all these things, always trying to figure out what lessons should we be learning as we study this. And to be fair, a lot of this is not, thus saith the Lord, now you go and do likewise. But there are definitely some lessons in here from which I think we can uh, learn. One is this, and I think this is a biblical principle. So David, throughout the course of his life, is surrounded by conflict. And yet, he's perfectly in the center of God's will. In fact, the blessing in this situation comes through the conflict. It comes through uh, battle, battle with evil. Um, and even he's going through personal struggles. He's going through losses in life. And I would think with the constant risk to life, the, the loss of his fiance, who marries another right in front of him, even though he didn't really want to marry Marib anyway, uh, being betrayed by the highest power in the land and know that you're bound to him. Like, I think a lot of us, we would spiral into depression, 
Um, and yet David doesn't. And so why doesn't David do that? Oh, I think it's because this. David knows the Lord is with him. And he's just got this, it seems, assumption that if God's with me, I'm going to be okay. And so for me, then, a lesson from David would be God can bring good out of any circumstance. So it doesn't matter what evil or even Satan himself plans for us, God can bring good out of anything. And this isn't just something we've learned in the Old Testament. This is a principle that's reflected for us in the New Testament. Uh, a memory verse, popular memory verse, and if you haven't memorized it, it would do you good, is Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 reminds us of this, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, which means then you could have a bad, I don't know, government, leader, boss, spouse, uh, parent, authority, any situation, you get a horrible situation, and at the end of it all, God can bring good. God can bring, and I just, uh, let's pause for just a second there. I know there are people here this morning going through tough stuff. And if you're not careful, you will spiral because you will convince yourself that you have to control something or you've got to figure something out or just that the world is horrible and everybody's against you and even the devil himself is against you. Like, okay, pause, pause, pause. When are we going to stop to acknowledge the sovereignty of God? That he is legitimately in control and that my aspiring out of control is foolish. One of the ways I know we did this uh, as our kids were growing up was as a parent, you're always worried about your kids. You're just fearful. And so to you young parents out there who are like, I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about their health. I'm worried about their friends. I'm worried about their schooling. I'm worried about where, 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 where your whole life. You can stress your whole life until they leave your house and worry again until finally you head to the grave. Or it would do you much better if as a young parent, a parent of young kids, you would just stop for a second and go, wait, wait, wait. God is in control, not me. He's a better parent to my kids than I will ever be. I am only called to be responsible to what I can do and the rest I'm going to trust him for. And so when you find yourself spiraling out of control, what's happened is you're trying to be God. That's idolatry. That's repentance. We've got to pause there and go, okay, Lord, I repent. And so that's just an example. It happens in all sorts of areas where like, if I will do this or I will move this or people are treating me unfairly and I'm not being reckoned and you start to spiral out of control with anger and bitterness, sadness, frustrations, all those things are probably signs that you're trying to play God. Crawford Loritz, let God elevate you. All right, there's a lesson we can learn from Saul then, which is the other side of that, that we can be our own worst enemy. When we become consumed with fear, distrust, hate, uh, even feel like Satan's working against us, if you're not careful, you'll find yourself headed in a bad direction. So watching Saul's life can remind us that division, jealousy, infighting, all those things, they can even happen among God's people or people that should be God's people. Uh, and this is the kind of stuff that can ruin us, that can ruin our walk with God. It could even ruin our churches if we're not careful. Let me pause. Lord, I just want to lift up this congregation here today, those who are watching us online. And uh, Lord, first, we probably do need to confess that we spend a lot of time trying to take your role. Uh, and that's not what you've called us to. We need to be people who we do what you've called us to do, filled with your spirit, but then we're going to trust you to work out circumstances. And that there is not a thing coming against us, real or imagined, that you are not the king of. And Lord, you have reminded us that you can bring good out of any circumstance. And in this case this morning, even when somebody's trying to kill you and ruin your life, Lord, you can elevate and bless. So for, Father, for us, I would just pray, may we stay humble before the throne of Christ. May we continue to elevate him as Lord of our life and walk in full submission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.